Well, we are kind of in the middle of a short series thinking about the the fact of when catastrophe strikes. We're thinking about how to process that uh, biblically. What do we do when the things in life uh, don't go our way? What do we do when our world gets turned upside down, when the rug gets ripped out from underneath us? How do we respond? How do we think about this? What do we dwell upon? And, and certainly, <clears throat> as I said last time, you know, we began thinking about this in terms of Lamentations chapter 3, and, and uh, I appreciate it. Tom went back there even yesterday with, uh, with the message, just talking about the fact that we have to fill our minds with the hope of God, that our minds must come back to God. In every ordeal in life, in every situation that we encounter, we must come back to God. There is no other place for us to go. And when we dabble in going other places, which we do at times in our own hearts, our own souls, we find comfort, find relief in other things and perhaps the things of this world. There's no satisfaction there. There's no, there's no true peace. There's no true delight, there's no true joy, there's no true comfort. Because all of those things in this world are temporary. God is the one who is eternal. And so, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go listen to to part one, because we're going to just jump back into part two today of of this message. Uh, We began last time looking at Psalm 46, just briefly, coming to the conclusion of that which I've already said, that we must come to God, our refuge and our strength, the one who is our ever-present help in times of trouble. And so it's critical for us to set our minds upon God who provides the stability and the comfort and the, and the peace that only He can. And, and so I wanted to do that by considering four responses to catastrophe for the believer that center on the character of God. And and we began last time by just looking at the first response, which is to rest in the absolute sovereignty of God. And we did not even finish that point, and so I want to do that this morning. Um, As I mentioned, uh, I appreciate you guys kind of coming along this little journey that I've taken my, in, my, uh, in my personal time with the Lord and thinking through this stuff in, in recent weeks. And, um, and again, I don't really have a timetable on this. I, I, think, I think we'll bring it to a close maybe in March, so we'll see what happens. But, um, but I appreciate you, you doing that. I, I do want to finish thinking this morning about resting in the absolute sovereignty of God and then hopefully move on to a second crucial component of uh, what we need to think upon in our response. But but, um, we looked at, last time, Job. I wanted to look at three passages that that elevate in our minds the sovereignty of God and put that on the pedestal that it needs to be placed on. We need to have a right understanding of what it means 
when we say God is sovereign. And so we said a few things like this, that that God's absolute sovereignty means that nothing can thwart his perfect will. Nothing takes God by surprise. That he orchestrates everything in this life to bring about his glory and the good of his people. And we said this, that though God is not the author of evil, he did eternally ordain its existence by permitting it to come to pass by means of second causes through Satan and then through the fall of Adam and Eve. His moral creatures whom he created by first cause brought evil into the world by choosing to rebel against their creator by the hand of Satan. But all of this, all of those things, everything that occurred in Genesis chapter 3 that is Uh, that is so terrible, uh, that is so devastating, that has cast our world in the direction that it's gone, was not outside God's perfect plan, which he ordained in eternity past. Rather, it was an avenue by which he chose to glorify himself. So, So we wanted to understand that the existence of evil is for the glory of God. We have to understand that. We have to embrace that. And so, so we considered, first of all, the life of Job. And we saw that his response of worship at the beginning, we saw his response of worship in the middle, and then we saw his response of worship just briefly at the end as we closed last week, that he just came to the realization, and God did kind of open up the cloud, so to speak, for Job there at the end when God said, Job, you question me and I'll answer. And then he says, and I'll question you and you'll answer. And he unveiled, he pulled back the curtain a little bit concerning why he did what he did. And it was, it was to demonstrate his power and to demonstrate his authority and to demonstrate fact that he is sovereign over all things and that even in the midst of that that he loves his people and he cares for his people so i want to turn to a second passage this morning that you are very familiar with and it's a story that <clears throat> i don't know about you but i go back to a lot in my thinking when i think about the sovereignty of god in the midst of difficult circumstances and that is the story of joseph the story of Joseph, and it begins in Genesis chapter 37, and, and we're kind of doing a flyover. We're not going to do Genesis 37 through 50 in any kind of manner that is, is, uh, is extremely in-depth, because I just want to draw from this the overall point that, that I, I want to make. You're familiar with this story. You're familiar with Joseph. Joseph was the son of Jacob. Joseph had 11 other brothers. Joseph, we know from chapter 37 of the book of Genesis, was his father's favorite. His father's favorite. And he was given a coat of many colors to indicate that he was his father's favorite child. That's, that's one of the indications that we have you know, he was born to Jacob's wife, um, Rebecca, who did not 
you know, could not have children. And she was then able to produce two children. God gave her that ability. And she had Joseph and Benjamin. And so those were Jacob's favorites, favorite children. And Joseph was the guy who had the coat of many colors. Throughout his life, his brothers noticed that he was the favorite. He would tend the sheep. He would go out and, and deal with his brothers who were, who were tending the flocks. And that's where we start to pick up the life of Joseph is when he goes out and, and he's checking on his brothers for his father. And he tells them about this dream that he's had, <laughs> which is, is quite the dream. And the dream indicates that Joseph is going to one day rule his brothers. And Joseph, you know, one of the things we, we see in Joseph's life is that there are no outright indications of sinful uh, actions on Joseph's part. But you do have to wonder, what was the purpose of Joseph telling his brothers this dream? I, I was, I am a brother. And I mean, there have been times in my life I've told my siblings something just to stir the pot, right? <laughs> my kids do the same thing. And I'm constantly telling them, stop. You know that when you say those words, that things are going to get stirred up. Joseph had to know, and he had to know. He had to know that when he went out and told his brothers, listen, <laughs> I'm dad's favorite and I'm going to rule over you, that that may not end well for Joseph. And we know that that didn't end well. They cast him into a pit. I mean, they really took things a little too far, right? I mean, my brothers would come after me. Sometimes my kids go after one another, but as far as I know, nobody's ever been thrown into a pit, which I'm extremely grateful for. That would be a new set of concerns. But, but, but Joseph was thrown into this, this miserable pit, and that was plan B. <laughs> plan A was, from the majority of the guys, let's kill him. So he didn't just stir the pot. He made them extremely angry and extremely jealous to the point where they were ready to kill their own flesh and blood. Thankfully, in God's providence, the oldest brother had a little bit of wisdom to, to hold back and not kill him. And instead, they just threw him into a pit, which wasn't much better, and then took his coat, killed an animal, rubbed it in blood, and sent that back to their father. A very devious, very vile, you know, really taking things out of hand in a very immoral way. That's what his brothers did. We do know that his oldest brother was going to come back and pull him out of the pit <laughs> and send him back, and he just wanted to kind of teach him a lesson. But he got back to the pit, and Joseph was gone. And he had been sold to these um, people who were on their way to Egypt, these Midianites, and... Um, and so he was sold into slavery, and they took him, they took him to Egypt, and they sold him to Potiphar. And then we see Joseph's life really take a bit of a turn. You know, it started out pretty good. <laughs> Dad's favorite, 
<clears throat> that great coat. Glad we don't do the coats anymore. It's, I mean, I, I think I would like a coat of many colors. I'm kind of an eccentric guy a little bit, but, but pretty glad we don't do the coats. You know, he had the coat. So, so he was a, a favorite guy. Then everything, if the, everything takes a turn for the worst as he is thrown into the pit, that is this absolute disaster that takes place for Joseph. But then God in his providence brings Joseph back around and he's sold to Potiphar there in chapter 39 and he begins to rule Potiphar's house. He had so much wisdom that God had given him, God had graciously given him, that he was able to manage this chief in the land of Egypt's house. He was overseeing everything. He had control of, of all of his servants, of probably of all of his money. He was just, he was the steward. He was the manager. He was overseeing it. Potiphar's wife enters the picture and creates havoc for Joseph. Again, not outside of God's plan. And Joseph is then accused of taking advantage of Potiphar's wife, which she had conjured up and gets himself thrown back into prison. So when you think of Joseph's life, you think of like this, right? top, bottom, and in extremes. I mean, our lives are a lot like that, not nearly as extreme, but, but life is like this. Right? There are ups and downs. Joseph's just was the extreme up and down. And here he is back in prison. Chapters 40 and 41, <clears throat> he, he's there. He interprets the dreams of the butler and the baker. And unfortunately for one of those guys, that was the end of his life. And he was killed. But the other one was restored. Pharaoh had a dream. Pharaoh hears about Joseph. And Joseph comes to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And when he tells him that there's going to be these years of famine, there's going to be these years of plenty, Joseph says, this man is, or uh, Pharaoh says, this man is wise. And he makes him one of the overall rulers of Egypt. That's an amazing thing. <laughs> Again, the extreme. Top to the bottom, to the top, to the bottom, And as all this occurred, <clears throat> Joseph is just trusting the Lord. Again, we don't, we don't get indication as we look in his life that uh, uh, he was sinful, apart from if we read into it a little bit, that little charade he put on for his siblings. But apart from that, you just don't look at Joseph's life and say, man, this guy, he, just, he didn't learn his lesson. <laughs> Uh, he's, maybe he's being punished by God. We, we don't see that at all. We just see this hand of God sovereignly taking this individual, allowing these things to happen in his life for a purpose. For a purpose. It, it just is such a, a clear picture that our lives are not our own. Our lives are in the hands of God. And God is the one who weaves us through the days that we live, enables us 
to do the things that we do, to have the, the jobs that we do, the abilities that we do, that gives us all of the possessions that we have, that allows us to encounter the trials that we encounter. He's doing this because he's orchestrating a plan, again, to bring about his glory. And, and one of the things I love about the story of Joseph, because you know, he, goes, he goes on, to, to be the ruler, and his brothers come and see him, right, because the famine starts to take place. It's probably my favorite part of the story, which is unfortunate because it's a little bit of the revenge side, right, where his brothers come, and he starts to mess with them. But he messes with them in a way that's a little bit less than, you know, leaving them for dead. He does, he does keep one back. He plants evidence <laughs> in their sacks, on their donkeys, on their horses, they go back. And, and he creates this scenario by which they are scared of this ruler in Egypt. They still don't know who he is. And they go back, they do all these things they wanted to do. They convince their father, listen, we've got to bring Benjamin. <laughs> you know, if we, if we don't bring Benjamin, he's not going to give us the other brother back. And so they have this whole thing that, that unfolds. And, and Joseph's doing this. And, and again... Not, I don't think we can see in this text that it was necessarily a revenge. It was just, just getting, working up, working up the, the ability to talk to his brothers. And, and, and he goes through this entire process. I, I sure, I'm sure he laughed a little bit as he did this. But he gets to the point where he reveals himself to them, chapter 44. All right, he reveals himself to his brothers, and then, you know, if they were a little bit scared and threatened by the way this guy had dealt with them, now they are terrified. Now they are terrified. <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> this, this brother who we, we are, we got rid of him. He was gone, and then all the things come flooding back to their minds. Oh, this is payback. This is payback. We are going to be sunk. And then he treats them with kindness. He's overwhelmed with God's goodness in his life through the midst of the difficulties and the tragedies that he then, he had every right, even as the ruler of Egypt, to deal with these guys and what they did to him. I mean, humanly speaking, he had every right to deal with them in a very negative way. Because of the goodness of God in his life, he was good to them. He was kind to them. He was loving to them. In fact, he brings them all to the country of Egypt. He gives them the land of Goshen for them to live and to raise their families. He brings back his father. He gets to see his father before his father passes away. And then after his father dies, the brothers get nervous again. <laughs> well, maybe he was just kind to us because dad was still alive. Now dad's gone. And we find these words in Genesis 50, 20. You're familiar with them. You know them. But he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That word it there in verse 20 is the word evil. God meant evil for good to bring about this present result. I mean, that that verse in Scripture is so helpful for us. As we look at all of the different catastrophes of life, some very personal, perhaps you've gone through, some more national, like the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. But you look at these catastrophes in life, and you have a place to gather your thoughts and to center your theology through a verse like this. That God meant this for good. In other words, God is so sovereign, is so completely in charge of every single element in this universe that he can take this evil that his brothers constructed and it was wicked and vile and he can take that and turn it for good. And what was the good? Well, because Joseph was in charge, he stored up the grain and the nation of Israel was preserved. And so you take a step back and you look at this evil that this man had to endure and that he had to encounter. And again, we're looking at that saying it wasn't because he deserved it. It wasn't this evil, wicked man that God was punishing through all these things. We're not saying that about Joseph. We're looking at him and we're saying, Lord, it's incredible that these difficult things went on for this guy. And then as you take a step back and and move beyond Joseph, you see this sovereign plan of God that goes back to the very promises he made to Abraham when he said that I will make you a great nation and then that out of that nation my seed will come, the Redeemer, who will be the Savior of the world. So you look at a story like this with Joseph and you can get into the details and think about all the things that happened to him. But what I want you to understand is that when you look at that, you have to take a step back and see this overall orchestrated plan by a sovereign God to continue to produce his purposes that he ordained before the beginning of time. That's what we have to do when these kinds of things happen in our lives. And it's hard because we drill down on the details. We think about, even as we celebrated Jonathan's life yesterday, and we think about that whole situation. I'm finding myself, as I, as I watched that slideshow yesterday, or even the day before, before we had the deal, and just thinking in my mind, like, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? And getting stuck in those things, and, and as we've already talked about, it was a sinful decision that affected 
many, many, many people. A decision that should never be thought about, should never be emulated. But when we look at that, we can't stay there. We always have to come back as people who belong to God and say, God, even in the midst of something like that, that is so tragic and so devastating and and incredible catastrophe, and come away saying, even in that, God, you are sovereign over the entirety of this situation, and we don't know what you're going to do as a result of it. We don't understand how this fits into your plan, but we know from the scriptures, from stories like Joseph, that these things do fit in. And that enables us to trust God. Right? It's, it's these encounters. It's these stories. You know, Corinthians tells us that the Old Testament is written as, as an example for us, for us to understand the nation of Israel is, is an example to us of what, what not to do. <laughs> and we look at things like this and we see this and we say, we understand God better because of this account in Scripture. And it then helps us to make direct application to our own lives, to our own souls, so that we don't get lost in the details because, listen, you're not going to find anything in the details. When, when we make sinful decisions in our lives, there is so much deceit that has gone on in our thinking that it's very difficult to unravel. And so we have to come out of that and we have to say, God is sovereign over this, though we don't get it, though we don't understand it. God is sovereign over this. Joseph helps us do that. There's another text that I think is helpful for us to see. It's one of my favorites when thinking about God's ultimate sovereignty over everything, and that is found in the book of Acts. I've alluded to these scriptures before, but here we see in a sense, how the decisions of man and the sovereignty of God fit together because that's a question we have, right? Humanly speaking, that's a question we have. Now, if we believe the scriptures and we hold to a right understanding of the theology that that the scriptures unfold before us, we trust that God is sovereign and we trust that everything happens according to his plan, but we still wonder (laughs) how our human actions and God's sovereignty fit together and how that works. This text is helpful concerning these things because it just presents both truths in a parallel manner that help us to see it. Acts chapter 2. Let me read these couple verses and then we'll talk about them. 
And you remember Acts chapter 2, it's a little bit of context. We were here just a handful of weeks ago, right? It's the day of Pentecost. Peter gets up and preaches. 3,000 people come to Christ. That would have been awesome to see. That's what's happening here. And these souls come to Christ after this sermon. So we are picking up in verse 22, which is right in the middle of this sermon. And in this sermon, as we talked about, it was not just uh, a bunch of fluff, uh, you know, the kind of fluff that, that says, you know, you don't have to worry about your sin and, you know, Jesus, all these different things that the world will say that you just come to Jesus as you are and, and still live the way you want. This, none, none of that in this sermon. None of that. In fact, at the end of the sermon, it says that they were pierced to the heart. You remember that in verse 37. So that's where this comes. This indictment that he brings upon these people who are listening. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you you yourselves know. In other words, Jesus made himself abundantly clear to you who he was. And through the power that God worked through him, showed himself to be the son of God. And he says, you clearly saw that. Verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is Peter proclaiming God's sovereign use of evil men to accomplish his purposes. Now, you never want to swing the pendulum too far here because this is where we can get deceived in our thinking. Well, if God's going to use evil. We could just be evil and God will use us. Listen, that is wicked thinking. That's not right. We are responsible for our own sinful actions. Every sinful thought that we have, every sinful action that we take, we are completely and totally responsible for it. We are accountable before God for everything that we do. And you see that with Peter as he says, You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. There's evil written all over that phrase. This was an evil plan that was conjured up by evil men to get rid of this guy who was causing problems in their nation that was leading people away from their false system of belief to himself. And they hated him. And so he had to go. And so they conjured up this plan, which we see unfold in the Gospels through the, through the deceit of, of Judas. 
that Jesus was handed over there in the Garden of Gethsemane and that he was taken and that he was tried illegally, by the way, at night. And then he was condemned to death and put on the cross. And this was all at the hands of evil men. Every one of those who participated in that event, evil men, in fact, we know from the implications of the scriptures as a whole that we are those evil people. As it was our sin that drove Christ to the cross. It was our sin that he went to the cross to bear. And so, We are guilty as they were guilty. But the reality is what Peter is saying, and one thing we cannot miss, is that we are responsible for our own sinful actions. He's not passing the the buck at all in his statement here as he makes these statements in a parallel manner. We are responsible for our actions, but... (laughs) This man who you nailed to a cross as godless men, he was actually delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. There's the parallel truth that though every single person who participated that day in trying Jesus, then taking him to the cross, nailing him there, were all guilty. That that was according to God's predetermined sovereign plan. Again, we've made the statement, we understand this, we embrace the truth that nothing takes God by surprise. He doesn't learn things. He wasn't shocked by this. He wasn't in a, he didn't have to respond to this. He, he planned this. Planned this. And we know the reason that he did this. And those words, those are big words. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was a deliberate plan of God in eternity past. In the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a deliberate plan that was devised by which God would demonstrate his justice and his mercy to the people of this world that he created and by which God would place his son as the ultimate object of glorification for the world, as the ultimate object of worship. And so it was predetermined, it was foreordained that these evil men would do such a wicked thing that they would take Jesus to the cross, that he would be crucified, and we know the end result. We know the end result. We're sitting here thinking through this because of the end result. The goodness of God to his people through the hands of wicked men is that you and I have our souls cleansed by the blood of that perfect lamb who was slain on the cross.
our minds have difficulty understanding that. But again, as that picture is painted, as God presents himself as the one who is sovereign over everything, but yet every human is responsible for their actions, we see this God who is sovereign over even those evil actions to bring about his perfect good and his glory. There's a parallel text to this just in chapter 4. Again, one of Peter's sermons. Verse 23. This is after they were taken to prison, again, illegally, I guess. For them it was legal, but just for preaching the name of Christ. Verse 23, when they had been released... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise evil things? The kings of the earth took their stand And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Again, they were in the midst of difficulties in their lives as they had been taken to prison. Because after the day of Pentecost, all these people getting saved, those religious leaders were a mess. <laughs> and so they brought massive persecution, which God in his providence, his sovereignty, used to spread the gospel throughout the world from that time. But they had been released, and so they had just encountered these difficulties, just encountered these intense trials. And where do their minds go? As they come back together, people, and, and, and come back, in a sense, to worship, their minds go to the reality that God has predetermined, he has predestined these things to occur for his glory. We have to go there. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was predestined by God. This tragedy was according to the purpose of God and the plan of God for the glory of God. And friends, so is every catastrophe that has ever or will ever occur on this planet. Satan and sin are at God's holy and righteous disposal to use to accomplish his perfect and sovereign plan that is fixed to be carried out in this world for his glory. As you've heard over and over, Martin Luther said, Satan is God's devil. It's God's devil. God does not prevent evil from occurring. Not because he is unable to prevent it. Or not because he doesn't have the knowledge to prevent it. 
but rather because he uses it to accomplish his purposes. Listen, this you don't want to miss this. It serves evil. Evil serves as a backdrop against which the most glorious act of human redemption is framed of redemption is framed. It serves as a backdrop against which the most glorious act of redemption is framed. God uses evil as a tool to magnify his perfections. And ultimately, evil will be completely done away with for his glory. And so when we think about God's sovereign use of evil to accomplish his purposes and how he does that in his sovereign plan that was predetermined before the foundation of the world, we come out of that seeing the magnification of Christ against the backdrop of all that is wicked. And that brings our hearts to worship him. Brings our hearts and our minds to the place where it has to go. Again, we spend too much time thinking about situations, thinking about our, ourselves in those situations. And yes, sometimes we have to work out all of the murky, difficult details. But we have to. We have to, friends. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to bring our minds to this place. That God is in charge of everything. And when we truly do that, again, we say that. You won't find a venue on this campus that doesn't preach that truth over and over and over again. You won't find it because we believe in it wholeheartedly. And so we speak it. But when you come to understand that, it truly is the pillow on which you can lay your head at night, as Spurgeon said. God's sovereignty is that wonderful. It's not something to be scared of. It's not something to be confused by. It is certainly not something to push back against. It is something to be embraced. And when you do that, Christian, doesn't matter what you face in this life. You will come back to that truth and you will find comfort and rest in the God who is sovereign over every detail of life. Some of you guys were at the men's breakfast yesterday. George was preaching and he said, you have to be prepared to be prepared. You have to be prepared to be prepared. And what he was talking about in terms of dealing with life's issues. Right, we... We get hit with an issue. That's not the time to be figuring out how to be prepared. That's one of the reasons I want to harp on this. We have to be prepared to be prepared. You want to know how to think about this issue so that you can rest in the God who is so much greater, so much bigger so much more wonderful and gracious than we can ever imagine. I think we'll stop there.
We want to rest in the absolute sovereignty of our almighty God. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for today. Thank you for just the opportunity to look at these passages that probably, Father, are just so familiar to us. But to just dwell on them for a few minutes, be able to see the big picture. We don't want to get consumed by the details, though we must sort out details. Father, we want to be consumed by the reality that you are sovereign over every single thing in this life. And as a result of that truth, we can trust you. Father, help us to do that this morning. Whatever situations we're dealing with in our own hearts and our own lives, that we fail to trust you. We know when we're failing to trust you when we are living in worry and doubt. And so, Father, whatever those issues are in our own hearts and our own lives that at times plague us, I pray that you will help us to place all of those at your feet and to say, you are sovereign and I will trust you in this situation, in this situation, in this situation because you are worthy of our trust. You are worthy of our worship. Thank you for your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.